This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Hi, everybody. It's Elise Spiegel. And Hannah Rosen from Invisibilia. And today we are bringing you a Between Seasons bonus episode, because we like you. We're going to try to do these every couple months, so keep an eye out. This bonus features our first ever live event. We partnered with this awesome D.C.-based storytelling group called Story District to explore a theme that might be familiar if you listen to the last season. The in-between. Basically, we put out this call requesting story submissions about living in the in-between, and we got a bunch of very beautiful stories of people charting their own path in a world full of absolutes. Also, Hannah's got a story about an unexpected identity crisis and how she resolved it. So let's get started. Alex remembers the brochure for the conference. It was glossy and had the name Pulitzer on the front. Pulitzer is a very powerful word to someone who wants to be a journalist, especially when it's paired with other important sounding words like crisis reporting or national press club. Here's Alex. Said like which editors would be there and who was talking like, you know, editors from the Times and things. So yeah, it was, I mean, it was a good opportunity, I think, like to introduce myself. Like, I want them to know who I am. Like, I want them to know my name. Alex had been trying to work her way up the journalism food chain for a couple of years. And she'd had some success. She'd written some small features, some travel stuff. Decent work, but not exactly the kind of hard-hitting journalism she aspired to. But she knew she would get there. It was just going to take a minute. So with hope in her heart, she slapped her name tag high on her shoulder and hit the conference room floor. But as soon as Alex started mingling this really surprising thing started happening. People at the event started coming up to me and being like, oh my God, I love your work. It happened over and over again. I love your work. I love your work. And even though she liked the attention, Alex was a little bit puzzled. I was writing like city guides, like where to see pandas in China or like, like, who the f*** is going to be like, I really loved that. And I mean, that's a cool, like, it's an important thing and like some really fantastic work about pandas. But like, I didn't really feel like that warranted people being like, I loved your work, you know. But then one of the many people complimenting her said something slightly different. I love your column. And I was like, oh, damn it. Okay. Because with the word column, Alex suddenly understood what was happening. I realized that people were confusing me for the other Alexandra Petri. The other Alexandra Petri. See, the full name of the woman that you have been hearing is Alexandra Petri. But it turns out that she wasn't the only 30-ish woman who lived in Washington, was born in the month of March, and was spending everything in her life around the dream of becoming a famous journalist. There was another person like that, and she had the exact same name, spelled the exact same, just pronounced in a slightly classier-sounding way. Alexandra Petri. Alexandra Petri. And that, Alex, she's a columnist, but not just any columnist. I think she's the youngest columnist ever at the Washington Post. But not just any youngest columnist ever at the Washington Post. She wrote a book. It's really strange to see your name on a book stand. Also, she is a playwright as well. In fact, 
all down the list, the other Alex was hitting home runs. It is like the woman literally did not know how to single. Uh, She went to Harvard. She was on the newspaper at Harvard. I think she was like a Forbes 30 under 30. Rolling Stone, top 100 funniest people in America. For some reason, I feel like she did acapella, but I could be making that up. (laughs) Where Alex, one, came from a humble family. Her father was a plumber in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Alex, too, came from a super high-class family. She grew up in Georgetown. Her father was in politics. I think he might have been a congressman or something. Did I mention that she's beautiful, but also charmingly awkward? And she's engaged. And to top it all off, (laughs) she is apparently just a kind of lovely, kind, and funny human being. Kind of really irritating. It's like she was carefully handcrafted in some basement specifically to make Alex One, the woman from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, who covers panda locations, feel bad. Now, Alex One had heard about Alex Two before. I mean, she'd gotten the occasional email congratulating her on some accomplishment that she had not actually accomplished. So she knew that there was another person with her name, but it didn't feel like an issue until she was walking through the conference and everyone was congratulating her. That is when it hit her. I was like, this is a problem. Alex was obviously not the famous Alex Petri, but people weren't seeing her as herself either. So she was pushed into this no man's land, this in-between, and it was so excruciating that by day three, she just decided to give up. Oh, no, like, then I was like, I don't feel like explaining this again. Like, thank you, great, you love my work, cool. And Alex didn't just bounce back after the conference. She says she felt lost, like the world that she'd been planning to inhabit all of her life had suddenly been taken from her. It's this feeling of like you're trying to make a name for yourself, but your name has already been made. So how do you even do that when people think you're, like, already this really great, you know, prolific columnist who writes books and writes plays and is smart and people love your work, but, like, that's not you at the end of the day, you know? Alex says she was just stuck. I was sort of caught in between, like, a lot of different things. Like, I'm trying to get on a path, but the path's already taken. But having occupied this her but not her space for a while now, it's been a couple years, she's become a kind of seasoned navigator of the murky in-between, and she's developed all these strategies to stake out her own territory. First, turn a humiliating situation into opportunity and just keep talking. No, I'm not the Alexandra Petri that works at the Washington Post, but actually, I am a journalist. Weird, I know. Second, use it to fuel your fire. Step up your hustle. I do as much freelance as possible as I can. You can maybe see the bags under my eyes. Third, assert yourself as yourself. In the end, I think this process has made Alex One realize that she really doesn't want to be the more famous Alex. She's working her own angles, and she is digging them. Over the last year, she's written stories about the water crisis in South Africa. She's just about to set out for a reporting trip to Mexico. And recently... She even had a byline in the Washington Post that got Alex too mistaken for her. I'm pretty badass, not gonna lie. Which made me ask her if she might actually have some wisdom for the other Alex, Alex too. If you had some advice to give to her from this experience, what would your advice be? Change your name when you get married. <laughs> 
Welcome to the first ever Invisibilia Live with Story District. I'm Hannah Rosen. I am Elise Spiegel. I'm Amy Sedman. I'm the director of Story District. So Story District has been putting together these live storytelling shows since 1997. So tonight we are super excited to be partnering with Invisibilia for their very first live show. We have all kinds of stories about people who are caught in between two absolutes, people like Alex, who are trying to chart their own path. So let's get started. Here is Corey Quinlan Taylor. So several years ago, I decided to become a Peace Corps volunteer. There were a few reasons for this, uh, but the greatest reason was I wanted to experience Africa. You know, Africa. <laughs> the cradle of humanity, the, the origin of jazz, hip-hop, and R&B, the motherland. And, um, you know, I think a big part of that came from the fact that I had friends who could identify where their ancestors came from culturally, but I couldn't. So I have friends who knew they were Italian-American. I had friends who knew they were German-American. I had friends who were Hungarian-American. And although I understood my ancestors came from Africa, I didn't know if I was Cote d'Ivoirian-American, Ghanaian-American, or Nigerian-American. But you know what? I'm not Japanese. And I think another part of this is I wanted to kind of like emulate the ending of the ABC miniseries Roots, you know, from the 70s where the uh, author, uh, Alex Haley, he, he traced his lineage to West Africa and he arrives in this village in Ghana and you know all the locals, they gather around him and they touch him and he sit down and he's like, oh, hey, that's Alex Haley, sit down. You know, like they knew him, he belonged, you know? And uh, for me, I, I wanted that. I wanted that cultural awakening. I wanted that big, warm West African Wakandan hug, you know? And... So I filled out the Peace Corps application, submitted it, was accepted, flew over, had my Peace Corps training, and after I was sworn in, I was assigned a liaison, a Beninois, citizen of Benin. And so he took me in an SUV to my village, and as soon as I arrived, all of these kids, they start like chasing around the car, and they're like getting up close, and, and they sing this song to me, and I'm thinking, oh, great, Alex Haley moment, you know? And they sang to me, Yovo, yovo, bonsoir, ça va bien, merci. So I knew some French, but I didn't know the word yovo, so I asked my liaison, um, dude, what does the word yovo mean? What does this mean? And he's like, eh, don't worry about it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And so over the course of the afternoon, 10 kids, 20 kids, 50 kids, and at a certain point, it felt like 100 kids were just jumping around me, happy, singing this song, and I'm like, really, you need to tell me what does this song mean? I'm really excited for this Alex Haley moment, and he said, well, the song means white person, white person, good evening, it goes well, thank you. I felt my Alex Haley moment crumble in my hands and fall to the ground. I was devastated. And, and, you know, he saw this happening to me. He was like, you know what? We need to go to the mayor's office so I can introduce you to him. So let's go. 
So we arrive to the mayor's office, and I'm sitting in the waiting room, and I'm trying to figure out why would these angels from heaven, these kids, say such a thing? Is it just like them teasing, or is it like part of the tradition, or what? And I'm overhearing the secretary. She comes to the office of of the mayor, and she knocks on the door. Uh, Monsieur uh, Leblanc, il est ici. (laughs) Which roughly translates to, sir, the white, he's here. And I'm looking around the waiting room, and it's full of Africans. And I'm like, "Uh, what does she mean by that? You know? And my liaison's like, "Ah, don't worry about it. I'm like, okay. So I move into my my community, and and I'm noticing a pattern here. You know? So whenever I'm riding on my bike, you know, the kids gather around and they sing that song. You know? And whenever I'm carrying like buckets of water from the pump to my home in the woods, the kids are gathering around and singing that song. And whenever I'm in the latrine, suffering from diarrhea and vomiting because I ate some really bad food, I hear a knock on the door. And I'm like, uh, c'est qui? Who is it? C'est moi, Antoinette. Antoinette's a local kid in my community. Uh, Qu'est-ce que tu veux, Antoinette? What do you want, Antoinette? Yo, yo, bonsoir, ça va bien, merci. And she runs off. I'm like, ah, I'm angry. Okay, I get it. I'm a foreigner. I'm an American. But I don't want to be called a white person. I mean, no offense to you all, but I don't want to be called a white person. (laughs) And so uh, this was supposed to be my my cultural awakening, my spiritual journey that you read about in literary fiction or see in the movies, you know. And whenever they sang that song, that took that moment away from me. And it was heartbreaking, you know. Um, So... Sometime later, I'm on my bike, just bummed out, and then Antoinette, she's like revved up on the end of the dirt road there, and she comes out, and she's like, Yovo, Yovo, bonsoir, and I just get off my bike. I don't even use a kickstand. I'm just off my bike, and I go over to her, and I say to her in French, look, don't call me Yovo. Call me American Noir. (laughs) And... She replies to me in French, American Noir, you know, and I'm like, merci, thank you. And she said, d'accord, okay. And so I send her on her way and I get back on my bike. And I'm thinking like a couple of weeks later, I'm coming back from teaching small business development courses to farmers and female cooperatives because that's what some Peace Corps volunteers do. And I'm on my bike and there's like a tsunami of kids. They see me coming and they're getting ready and I just feel my heart drop and they're like, Yovo, yovo, bonsoir, ça va bien, merci. And I hear this faint, American Noir. <laughs> and I just get off my bike. I use the kickstand this time. Get off my bike, go to a candy stand, buy a basket of candy, and I go over to Antoinette, and I just dump it all on her. And all the kids are like, what the hell? And I'm like, she called me American Noir. She gets the candy. So... Over the next couple of years, I train these kids, you know. (laughs) Whoever calls me American Noir gets candy. Whoever calls me Yovo got jack squat. (laughs) And not that I did it all the time, but I just did it enough that it kept the memory of my name, my name, in their heads. And so, by the time my service was over, I felt like my my community finally embraced me. I, I was having some semblance of a moment, you know. 
But when somebody from another town or another part of the country came and he or she like pointed at me and called me Yovo, my neighbor was like, no, that's not a Yovo. That's American Noir. Thank you. So our next story is about someone who found a way to navigate the space in between the magic and the mystical. Please welcome to the stage, Joni Peacock. It is the summer of 2005, and I've been out of work for about a year. I am an Episcopal priest. I get a job covering a parish for three months. I am psyched to be back in the pulpit again, but also super anxious. I am really good at what I do, and I want to do a really good job, but I have been in and out of the hospital four times for mania, a tightrope that I am just learning to walk. Mania is my favorite pole of bipolar. (laughs) It is awesome. My world expands, my thoughts spiral, my mind opens to unseen things. The ancient Irish have a name for this kind of thing. They call it a thin place, a place where space-time can stretch while you are standing still. Past, present, future overlap. Heaven and earth intersect. Bipolar disorder for me is about how big my thin place is. Too small and my world collapses. Too big and my world explodes. I want to live somewhere happily in between. So after four trips to the psych ward, I have got this. I have got some meds. I know my triggers. Who cannot handle a little mania? So to get back up to speed, I start to read. Nightly, I take about half a dozen books to my bed. The Bible, of course. Commentaries, novels, quantum physics. Madly flipping pages, I scribble in the margins. What the f***? No, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, I totally agree. And wrong, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you're just wrong. That's not crazy, right? Lots of people write in the margins. But not everyone is as lucky as me to start to hear the author's voices swirling in their heads. I'm not Joan of Arc, but like her, I start talking back to them, and these conversations start to keep me up at night. So this is a three-month gig, 12 weeks, 12 sermons, It is hard to come up with stuff to say week after week, but not the summer of 2005. It's like God is whispering sweet little nothings into my ears. Love is patient. Love is kind. Yes, God, yes. I write 12 sermons in 10 days, and they are brilliant. (laughs) 
Week one, profound. Week two, inspiring. But by week four, they're getting a little confusing. And by week six, they're not making much sense, not even to me. And that is disturbing. Who wrote these? (laughs) I have to throw half of them away and rewrite them, which is a pain in the ass. Maybe I need to schedule or pace myself a little better. Nah, I got this. So Tuesday morning Bible study, here I come. Bing, bang, boom, I enter the room. People circled up in chairs. Yes, I do hear what you're saying that does connect to the gospel, which makes me think about the Big Bang, which then I think leads to the Druids. And then we have to circle back to Mother Teresa and next week's bake sale. Wow, apparently I am just as great a teacher as I am a preacher. I hear a couple people whisper as they go out the door, well, that was rude. What was she trying to say? Rude? What was he saying? Ouch. That stung a little. Maybe all isn't quite right in my world. But I still have this helicopter in my head. The propellers begin to spin slowly at first, and then they pick up speed. I feel my feet lift from the ground. As my head gets higher, the air gets thinner, and I look down at mere mortals below. There is an unbearable lightness of being that is almost too exquisite to describe. Crazy, right? But that is exactly how it feels. And I get a crazy amount of stuff done. Good stuff. Feeding the poor, visiting the sick, baptizing babies, marrying people, burying people. I love my work. And I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to go to sleep. In fact, I don't have to go to sleep. Maybe you do, but I don't. But it does get a little harder to get up and get to work each day. So for efficiency's sake, weekdays I take the train an hour from Alexandria to Fredericksburg. But on Sunday mornings I drive my car so that I can get there on time. I throw my prayer book and my sermon into the back seat. Driving slowly at first I run through all the stuff I've got to do. Open the doors, turn on the lights, flowers on the altar, candles lit. My little Saturn, my chariot to heaven, starts to feel like a plane. And with every passing mile, I step on the gas a little more. Slip the surly bonds of earth, a little voice says, You can fly, Joni. You can fly. Acceleration feels like levitation. My car climbs into the sky. I have no sense of danger, only joy. And I am making great time. I'm going to get there early, beat the ushers, climb in the pulpit, set the place on fire. (laughs) But I am also wobbly from lack of sleep. And my car begins to weave from lane to lane. I lose consciousness. I let go of the wheel. My car backflips twice, my roof caves in. My windshield shatters. I wake up on the wrong side of the highway, 
turned wrong way round. I have just enough presence of mind to call the police. I'm okay, officer, just give me a ticket. I gotta go. I am so manic, I still do not think anything is wrong, but you cannot get more wrong than totaling your car. Oh my God, dear God, what have I done? My brain is a gift. I am a writer, a blogger, a storyteller, an Episcopal priest, a mental health advocate who also volunteers at the Library of Congress. <laughs> but I have to admit that mania is dark magic. And it is the memory of that car crash that keeps me sane. I could have died that morning much, much worse. I could have killed someone else that morning, someone's child, the antithesis of all that is holy and the darkest of places that I don't ever want to go again. So how do I keep my feet on the ground? Well, I take a few little meds every day, like clockwork. I walk all over the place and I write to navigate my way. And I have an awesome therapist who examines my head every week. But I have no desire for balance or to be in the middle of some mood chart. Yes, I believe in gravity, but I also believe in God. I want to keep my head just far up enough into the clouds to keep doing amazing things. I want to live in just the right space of the thin place. So our next story is about someone exploring the unintended consequences of crossing the space in between. Please welcome Morgan Gibbons. <laughs> I'm 25 years old, sitting in my doctor's office and trying to ignore the fact that the only thing standing between me and my transition from female to male is this doctor staring blankly at me. A man whose disheveled appearance and broken wire rim spectacles kind of made him look like the adult muggle version of Harry Potter. But he was magical to me, though, because he scribbled out a quick prescription for testosterone, and I took my first shot that night. And when before, when before I had been crushed beneath the societal expectations of my femininity, this was my chance to break through the cage, to become me, to become a little bit more free. And within days of taking my first shot, <laughs> I found myself racing to answer the phone just so I could say, hello. <laughs> and I practiced saying hello repeatedly 
I said hello so much that my mother yelled up the stairs, Morgan, Dion Givens, if you say the word hello one more time. And strength was the next thing to come surging into my life. There was nothing I wasn't lifting above my head or onto my shoulders just because I could. Completely full industrial-sized trash can. I lifted it. My oaken writing desk? I lifted it. My mom? I lifted her too. Tossed her like a sack of potatoes over my shoulder while she yelled at me. Morgan, if you don't put my black ass down, what the hell is wrong with you? And it wasn't just the deepening voice or burgeoning strength. Oh, no. A lot of other things were happening, too. Like when I talked. People were suddenly listening to what I had to say. The days of fighting tooth and nail for every comment or suggestion to be heard were relatively few and far in between. And the women? <laughs> the women began calling the house, swooning over me, because I knew how to talk so sweet and pretty. Hey, Jasmine, girl. You know you the only one I'm talking to, boo. My mom snatched the phone from my hand. Oh, so you just gonna lie to them, huh? I didn't raise you like this, Morgan Dion. Treating women this way don't make you a man. And maybe mom was right. All right, mom was right. But there was this one night when I was leaving work after an overnight shift at Target, and I stepped out into the darkness of the parking lot alone. I didn't have my keys in my hand just in case a man attacked me. I wasn't looking over my shoulder just in case he jumped from behind the bushes. No! I stepped out into that parking lot completely unencumbered by fear. Have you ever seen a grown man skip? Because that's what I did. As soon as I realized I didn't have to worry about some simple-minded little man messing with me, I skipped straight to my car, drunk on the knowledge and belief that I could do and be anything that I wanted. And I was driving home that night to my grandmother's house, where I lived shortly after transitioning down in North Carolina. And she lives in a 4,000-square-foot apartment, or home, <laughs> in one of those sleepy neighborhoods of wealth. They hide down two-mile driveways and behind blooming southern magnolia trees. And I pulled up at my house at 4.30 in the morning, and I felt him before I saw him.
the quick flick of red and blue lights, the siren silent in the pre-dawn air, my heart hammering in my chest. Because I had had run-ins with other types of men, the men who groped me, the men who thought it was cool to slip things into my drinks, the men who showed up at my house unannounced demanding entry so that the very sanctuary of my home was disturbed. But this, this was entirely new to me. And this local sheriff's deputy walked up to me, flashlight in my face just as I exited my car. Boy, what are you doing here? Sir, I, I'm just coming home from work. Well, that don't answer my question. And it don't tell me what you are doing here. Sir, I live here. You live here. Well, we've had a lot of car break-ins lately. Man, you lying? Is what I wanted to say. Because in neighborhoods like these, good news may travel languidly on the summer breeze, but the bad? Except I wasn't quite sure how that would go for me. And so I said nothing. Why don't you go ahead and put your hands on the hood of this vehicle? For what? Because you match a description and because I said so. And what description is that, huh? Black man working? Turn around. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I nearly called for my grandmother, nearly screamed loudly enough to wake the dogs in the surrounding houses, sending them into a frenzied barking uproar. But I am ashamed to admit that as my eyes slid down to his hip to the pistol that rested against it, I choked on my pride and my rage, and I said nothing. Because what could my grandmother do? come storming out the front door of the house, find herself confronted with the barrel of a gun and end up potentially hurt or dead too. I stayed silent. And when he found nothing, he had to let me go. But I just couldn't see how in this supposedly post-racial America, this so-called defender of my liberties could treat me as if I had never been freed. And I, I didn't realize after transitioning, I would become caged once again, matching America's description of a black man. A black man, black men. They make it so hard for us to stand. Thank you.
That was storyteller Morgan Givens. When we come back, a very personal story from our own Hannah Rosen. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is Invisibilia. I'm Hannah Rosen. And I'm Elise Spiegel. So now the moment that you have been waiting for, insight into the mind of the mysterious Hannah Rosen. <gasps> I want to tell you that there are some references to visuals that Hannah used as part of her story. Don't worry about it. You can get the gist just by listening. But if you do want to see the video, there's a link to it with the episode description for this podcast. Okay, back to the show. So it's 1985, late summer. I'm 15, and my brother is 18, and he's about to go to college, and he wants a car, which means a Rosen family road trip to the used car lots of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We went to like 8 billion lots because we didn't have money. So after scouring those 8 billion lots, he makes a decision, a 1977 Buick LeSabre. Gold with a light beige interior. (laughs) He's a mechanic, so he cares about stuff like that. So my mom's driving the car, heads back toward the lot where the Buick is, gets in the left lane, waits to make the turn. And they just slammed into us, and, and that was it. You know, everything blacked out on us. Another car hit us so hard that our own huge car got crushed in half. The back doors crumpled, the trunk flew open, and then I heard it before I saw it. My dad. Screaming, you know, get an ambulance, somebody call an ambulance. My mom was slumped over the steering wheel, unconscious, and bleeding from the side of her head. And what do you remember was my reaction? So everybody's reactions seemed normal. And then we have you. He was basically sat on the side of the road and observed. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was just like, all right, so we got into an accident. Yeah, all right, whatever. Like, when can we go home? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> my family would debate this abnormal reaction of mine for years. It was probably like one of those situations where it's just like, maybe there's something wrong with her. You know, maybe like, maybe the accident like brought out like what, you know, we couldn't diagnose in those years, you know, that kind of a thing. Another one of his famous theories, she just doesn't give a about us. Now the truth is I was probably just in shock that day, 
But as I sat by the side of the road, I developed a theory about myself. I had a superpower, an unnatural ability to keep fear and anxiety at bay. And especially in emergency situations, my mind behaved like a well-trained Marine, calm, focused, and ready to execute. <clears throat> and this story I had about myself served me well for many, many years. When I was in my 20s and traveling overseas and got myself into some dicey situations, when I became a reporter and there was a fire or a casualty or an accident, I was right there. And then when I became a parent, and there are so, so many things that you could potentially be afraid of. And then one day, I was traveling in Chicago with my son Jacob and his friend, and they wanted to go to the top of the Sears Tower to visit those glass balconies. If you've never seen them, they're like glass boxes in the sky. Glass sides, glass floors, they're pretty cool. So we take the elevator up, rush to the glass balconies, and all of a sudden, I feel like I am going to die. I am overcome with terror. I'm sweating and shaking, and I just stumble backwards. What was that? I'm supposed to be the fearless one. Surely I can handle a glass box. So I slip one foot onto the glass box, and again, total wave of fear. So I inch back slowly, defeated, pace my back to the wall, and wait for Jacob to finish. It was like overreacting to nothing. But when I freaked out, what did you guys think of me? Did you think, like, what a loser? Yeah. <laughs> Jacob is here. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> anyway, so over the next few weeks... <laughs> I tested this vulnerability of mine. I went to a rooftop party and peeked over the roof. I went to the top of a tall building, tried to look out the window. I tried to climb a tree that I have climbed many, many times before. No way. I just could not do it. So what did this mean about me? Was I no longer a fearless person? Was I a fearful person now? Or was I something in between? And that's where I was when my mother sent me this text. <laughs> if any of you have heard my Invisibilia story, you will know that my mother one day asked me if I would jump out of a plane with her. My father had died a year earlier, and for that entire year, my mother was totally miserable. She was barely leaving the house, barely eating. This was pretty much the first thing I'd heard her express an interest in all year. Uh, <laughs> she'd gotten it into her head that this would be the one thing that would help her move forward. And of course I wanted to help her. On the other hand, total terror. So I talked to my friends about this. I asked them, what should I do? And they gave me the same advice that many, many of you maybe are thinking, which is like, why do you have to go up in the plane with her? Can't, can't she jump and you stand on the ground and just like <laughs> clap for her? <laughs> to which I reply, what is wrong with all you people? Who sends their 74-year-old mother up in an airplane by herself? Not me. So before I knew it, I'm at the Philadelphia skydiving place, signing a stack of in-case-of-death forms. 
Only instead of me kindly comforting my mother, she's comforting me. You, you can change your mind, Hannah. <laughs> it's going to be nice, Hannah. It's going to be nice. I didn't change my mind. And so, we were off. How are you feeling? Nervous. Nervous? I'm trying to get excited. How many minutes do I have? So let me just pop in here to say that what happened next was I got pushed out of the airplane. And the video clip I'm showing of that moment displays what most people would see as a majestic natural landscape. But all I'm thinking in the moment is... Down, 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 please hurry up and go down. So did that experience settle my relationship with fear? Yes. It absolutely did. My new fear is incontrovertibly definitely real and definitely inside me. Not only that, but I would say skydiving made it two times worse because now I'm not just afraid of heights, I'm also afraid of airplanes. Because every time I get on an airplane, I proceed with the knowledge that someone could push me out of it. Now, does that mean that I'm a totally changed person? I don't think so. I think what I decided is that I'm a basically still fearless person with two giant gaping holes of fear. <laughs> that's okay. We can just decide that that's a thing. Now, for those of you who are thinking of going skydiving because, I don't know, your honeymoon or you want to have an adventure or whatever, here are two totally different views of that experience. Hey, Miriam, what'd you think of that? I think it's awesome. Awesome? Oh, Did you have a good time? I had a good time, and I'm going to do it again. You're going to do it again. Nice I job up there, Miriam. Okay. Thanks for coming to Cross Thank Keys. You so much. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's a wrap. Highlights from the first Invisibilia live show in the history of the world. A huge thank you to Amy Sedman, Vijay Nathan, and the Story District team. Their hard work made this collaboration possible. There were more great stories as part of this performance. To hear them and see videos of all of the storytellers, go to npr.org slash invisibilia. And for more information about our fabulous partners at Story District, go to storydistrict.org. They're always putting on these awesome live shows in Washington, and they also offer amazing storytelling classes. You should totally check them out. Our senior editor is Ann Gudenkoff. Our executive producer is Kara Tallow. Invisibilia is produced by Abby Wendell, Yoe Shaw, and Megan Kane. Leanna Simstrom is our project manager. Andy Huther is our technical director, and Anya Grunman is our vice president of programming. Thanks to Jay Siz, Jake Arlo, and Rebecca Ramirez for her last minute save don't miss the next bonus episode and all the latest Invisibilia news by following us on Facebook and Twitter at NPR Invisibilia and now for our moment of non-zen we have a moment of non-zen we have a moment of non-zen no 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 moment of non-zen for you break it break it day break it break it day I don't understand what he says to me trick it trick it be freaky freaky day Comprendo. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Spend time in any American city and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way? For the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions, listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.